everybody, welcome to the DeFi Mafia podcast. We are here today with the founder of Citus Protocol and Robinland, Scarlett, and here with uh, co-host Mike as always. How are you doing today, Scarlett? Doing well. How are you? Thanks so much for inviting me. Uh, really yeah. excited to be here. Yeah, yeah, we're excited to have you on. We recently had uh, Max Figi from Fiat DAO, and he's doing fixed income products, and he kind of discussed a lot of the issues with the real world asset part. So it's kind of a, a good uh, a flow to have you on mm -hmm. next to discuss that side of things. Um, I guess just to start out, if you want to give the audience a little background on like yourself and then what you guys are doing at uh, Citus and Robinland. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as I, uh, you mentioned, uh, I was a co-founder of Robinland and Citus and we're trying to build a bridge between liquidity in DeFi, either institutional or retail and boring lending use cases in real assets. And in terms of uh, my background, I was a PhD in economics at Stanford where I studied housing and real estate. Um, so housing has always been an asset class that fascinates me because it's very special. It's a combination of two things, both uh, consumption and investment. And you don't usually see that for, say, stock or bonds or, mm -hmm. or commodities. And because of that, there's a lot of inefficiency, such as, you know, as an investor, you need to pay a huge lump sum and it's not very liquid. And for owner occupants, their demand is often crowded out by speculators. Um, so from my perspective, I want to use financial innovation to help. So I wrote a paper about how I can create a derivative of the house price such that uh, the derivative is a very small piece. So investors can just hold on to that and leave owner occupants alone. And people who want to just buy a house to build a family can even hedge out the risk by shorting the derivative. Um, so in equilibrium, everyone is happier, at least what I found in my paper. So I was like, oh, this is really cool. I want to bring it to reality of some sort. And then lucky enough, you know, after I uh, graduated, I went into Google as a data scientist. And during my time there, I came across their internal crypto group. And I was like, oh, crypto is the missing piece of the puzzle because by tokenization, you essentially turn a large piece of an asset into a small piece crypto tokens that are highly tradable and very liquid. So that's at some level uh, one of the reasons why we started this, but also because I was lucky enough to have run into my two co-founders, Vinas and Yuntao, who have ext very extensive experience in real estate and in crypto and tech. So we have all of the pieces um, needed for this business because in order to build a bridge between A and B, you need people who are native in A and B, which are real estate and DeFi in, in our case. So that's roughly uh, June last year. Uh, the company September um, and uh, submitted a proposal to make her DAO to access a revolving credit line of 10 million from them. So the idea is that uh, traditionally in TradFi, there's only one central bank. And then other people have to borrow from banks or PEs, which are private credit, and that's very expensive. But in DeFi, somehow people have the ability or technology to mint out stable coins by themselves. So everyone can be a central bank. Um, and that also means they don't have cost of capital. They can just produce this uh, source of financing without any cost. And as a result, they can lend it very, very cheap um, below bank rates if they want. So if we borrow from Maker and then pledge high quality collateral such as real asset to them, we can access a much superior source of financing and then be very competitive when we lend out to developers. So that was the, the idea to begin with. And then we uh, passed their community greenlight poll in uh, this January with a very high percentage pass, uh, which is, was great. Um, but after that, there has been some delays because of their internal changes. So that's uh, why we actually decided to start, uh, you know, Citus protocol um, to directly source liquidity from retail investor in crypto, allowing them to park USDC with us and then provide them fixed passive income that's truly sustainable, supported by real assets um, borrowing lending uh, at roughly 8% um, per month. So that's um, sort of the intellectual history, how I got here and what we're trying to achieve. Awesome. Thank you. That was very, uh, very thorough. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting what you said about real estate, because real estate is obviously it's such a massive market, but it still remains pretty illiquid, right? Like that, that is the biggest, mm -hmm. probably, is it the biggest illiquid market in the world, probably? Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the problem with it, too, in addition to that, you mentioned that there's both speculators and consumers is that also, you have to take in the 
qualitative and quantitative part too when you're assessing an investment. Like obviously we've seen in the last few years, like I know Zillow was trying to buy large amounts and flip them. And then they ended mm -hmm. up shutting down that program because they were just losing money. Like when you, if you were to like fast forward five to 10 years and we had like synthetic assets representing uh, uh, real estate, do you think that it would be like you mentioned, like more of a specific like individual home or do you think it'll be more like baskets? Like, how do you think that would look long term? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I would think, you know, both, honestly, because if you look at, for example, the stock market, uh, there are huge, co huge companies like Google, Facebook, uh, which are individual companies, um, you know, that's being quote unquote tokenized, you know, essentially their shares and it's very liquid. Uh, but definitely, if you get to the smaller, like medium to small cap companies, then their liquidity isn't so great. And in that case, having an index that represents a basket of it will be very helpful. For example, if someone just want to get exposure to not only just the big ones, but also the smaller ones, then instead of in individually investing in things, they can just invest in a bucket. So that's what I think will also happen uh, to real estate. Um, in real estate, the problem is it's very heterogeneous. There's just no one thing that represents real estate. If you think about it, you know, commercial and residential, they're completely different. Mm -hmm. um, and there's equity versus debt. There's different geographic locations. And even within commercial, you know, a hotel will be different from a garage, different from like an office building. So that's why historically it's been kind of hard um, to essentially bring liquidity into real estate. Because when you talk about liquidity, you're really talking about ho homogeneity, right? Because you need a lot of things that are the same or similar but for people to efficiently trade on something. But if a piece of real estate is, say, you know, $1 million in size, which is a debt, even if you created tokens, there wouldn't be so many people with, within this asset altogether and all want to trade at the same time. So that's what I think, you know, why there was a challenge to real estate historically. So that's why I think one thing that we could do is to say, for example, approach it from the debt side. Because if you talk about equity, then each building is different. Like the ownership of, of building A is just fundamentally a different you know, animal than ownership in, in building B. But from a debt perspective, you can uh, use a few different parameters to represent the debt, say how long the duration is, what's the return, what's the LTV. Then uh, even if it's debt in different buildings, you can still try to homogenize that into different baskets. Like for example, you can have senior loan a junior loan, Mets preferred, you know, common, so on and so forth into different capital tranche. And then for each of them, you can just bundle things together. So that's kind of why we have also taken the approach of approaching it from a commercial debt perspective. So if you look at the space, there has been a lot of trials since I would say at least 2017 of bringing real estate on chain. But most of the people are approaching it either from the equity perspective, like tokenizing the ownership of things, or from the residential perspective, which is bringing single family on chain, or the combination of both. But those didn't work very well because fundamentally speaking, as I mentioned, equity is very heterogeneous. And also single family, they suffer from the irrationality of individuals. There is people who is trying to bid for a house to live in. They want to build a family in it. So the price fluctuation is just huge. And then there could be huge run-ups and really big drops um, like what we're seeing today in the market. So it's just not the best um, to build an investment product around. Um, and also yeah, the price oracle problem is a, is a big thing. So that's why, you know, we decided to do the commercial aspect and the debt aspect combined. Yeah, no, that's really interesting, the debt side, because part of the advantage of the debt side, right, is that if you're going from the equity side, you have to make sure you're doing your diligence on like individual properties, which at scale is very difficult. You know, you could mm -hmm. have two houses right next to each other and one worth half the price because it's damaged, whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. And you exactly. have to know those things. But the yeah. debt, assuming most cases, most people have already done that diligence for you once you get to the debt stage. That's actually pretty interesting. I never thought about it like that. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. That's a very Makes good point. Yeah I, yeah, I totally agree with you, which is, you know, due diligence is a very, very important piece in this process. And equity is hard because every building is slightly different, right? Mm -hmm. um, so take, uh, say, hotel as an example. You might look at this hotel and be like, yeah, this is itself a perfect building to invest in. But I didn't know that two blocks down the road, there is a plan for developing a new hotel that's going mm -hmm. to be just newer and, you know, better. 
And then however much time you put into this one, it's going to be wasted because people are just like you know, newer buildings. It's just harder that way. But then for debt, all that you need to figure out are just a few things. For example, what's the capitalization rate? You know, how much money or cash does the developer have? What's the track record? Have they defaulted before? And then especially the collateral. So when it comes to borrowing, really, uh, it's actually kind of simple to some extent. You lend to someone who are already having a lot of cash, and they also pledge a piece of collateral that has real value to the loan, and that's it, right? Because even if default happens, you can seize the underlying asset, which is a piece of land, and then auction it off in an open market. Because land is extremely homogeneous, you know, we have collect you know collectively only so much land on Earth unless we go to Mars. Otherwise, this is a scarce asset. It is probably more scarce than, say, diamond or or gold because we're continually, you know, still discovering new ones. But then this is, you know, land is just, you know, uh, how much we have on our hand, and that's why the market value of it is actually pretty stable and easy to determine. And the value goes up over time because. Uh, the value of a piece of land has to do with how much economic activity happens on that, and that is going up because you know, you know, as a human race, we're just making progress every day. So that's why when it comes to commercial real estate lending, it's actually not that hard, not that you know uh, dangerous as people thought. Really, it's just you know making sure that we're lending on top of a piece of land in a prime location, such as you know center of New York. Then you know that you you will be able to sell it off. Uh, even if default happens, and that's the approach that we're taking. So, how does the legal side of that work? Right, say someone does default on a loan, and their you know debt is on chain. Like, how do you guys manage that?、Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is actually a great question, which is、um, that's why you need a middleman like us、um, to be sort of the bridge between the on-chain world and the off-chain world, because technically speaking.、Uh, Our entire legal framework today, like it's still off chain, like it or not. Like you wouldn't have a lawsuit on chain, right? Executed by smart contract, you will still need to, for example, file a petition with the local court. You know, schedule court dates, go on court, and then, like,、uh, for example,、uh, do the auction off.、Um, so that's why, at the end of the day, when default really happens, there will be someone to execute on the operation side of things, and that will be us. But then the good thing is we are obligated by the smart contract to pay you interest、um, every period of time, so it's all written into the contract, and that's also why I think the synergy between smart contract and fixed income product is really interesting. Because if we're tokenizing an equity product, then I don't know how, how what the price will be tomorrow. I can't really write into the smart contract already how much I'll pay you tomorrow. But then with debt, I know on the date of loan closing. It's gonna be eight percent every period of time, and then I can just already write it into the contract, and then you know for sure. As long as we get paid, you will get paid this much on this date every month. And you know, from your perspective, really the risk is about the developer defaulting because that's a moving element off chain, and that's kind of as I mentioned why we only work with the highest trustworthy one and also ones with a piece of land that's very stable in value. And then we'll be the one executing on the essentially foreclosure, and then pay you the dividends or the proceeds at the end, which is usually thirty to forty percent return.、Um, so you're definitely right in that. Still until today, Rowasa on chain, the Oracle problem is a big thing.、Um, mm -hmm. Like for example, what happens when default happens, and how do I know that this piece of debt is worth that much? And that's something I think the. The entire field is, you know, a problem. The entire field is facing, and we're all collectively trying to、um, push for a better solution over time.、Um, and we want to be part of that,、um, building this infrastructure for people、um, to simplify essentially the operational side of things. Makes sense. So, could we go through like an example of how this would work?、Uh, maybe more in theory for now, but like, like from starting, like, okay. I go and purchase a pr property for whatever half a million, and then I get a certain amount of debt for that. And then you know the bank or whoever owns that debt would then do what? Like, wh how does that process start? Yeah, that、uh, that's a great question. So for us, we actually work with new building construction. So、um, think of、uh, say Brooklyn, New York. There's a piece of land that a developer has purchased with all cash. Uh, a few years ago, when the price was still pretty low, and they've been holding onto that land until a good opportunity to de develop it, and now they think it's the time. 
And by now, they've already secured all the licenses. They've converted all the land use from, say, commercial to residential and done, you know, all the, uh, you know, plumbing, like electricity or water. They're all ready to go. And then that's the time that we come in. We'll go into a negotiation process with the developer, look at the underlying asset and their development plan, which is usually hundreds of page long uh, with very detailed um, procedure. And then our underwriting team will decide on a yes or no um, on this asset. And if it's a yes, then we'll provide, say, for example, a uh, $1.5 million loan on top of an asset that's, for example, $1.7 million uh, in terms of the land value. And then the construction cost might be another uh, few hundred K. Um, so you can calculate the total LTV or you know, LTC, which is loan to cost. And then we'll always make sure that it's below certain thresholds. For the first project that we're working on, for example, it's only a 40% loan to total value, which is extremely low compared to industry standard. Yeah. And then after the underwriting procedure is done, we'll go into a contract. So we'll set up an SPV, special purpose vehicle, which is usually a serious LLC, and use that as the entity to enter into the loan contract with a developer. And there's usually a drawdown schedule, which means they won't get the 1.5 million upfront, but rather they need to hit certain milestone in order to go to the next phase and get the next, say, 50% or 30% of the cash. And for a first project, there's three phases. So at the beginning, they can only get a third of the money that they asked for. And this is to make sure that there's skin in the game, there's alignment interest, um, and they wouldn't run away, essentially. Um, so after the contract is signed, then at a specific date, we're going to send the money over to their bank account and then keep observing uh, the progress with construction pretty much every week to make sure that they're making progress, they're hitting milestones, uh, and all the development is according to schedule. Um, and over time, you know, after they hit the next milestone, they can draw to the next uh, schedule. And the interest payment is actually very special in this case. They will provide us half year of interest up front. So the overall loan term is one year. Um, but, you know, six months of interest is actually paid on day one, which is a very special feature with, you know, construction loans uh, or especially the ones that we're dealing with. So the, our retail investors, they're really safe because they know that for the first six months, there's literally zero risk of not being, getting paid because we already have the money in hand. And then for the second half, which is month seven to 12, um, they will be paying us the interest monthly. So that's the sort of interaction between us and the developer. So the beautiful, beautiful thing here is the developer doesn't even need to understand anything about tokenization between them and us. It's all, you know, very tradfi, you know, they can sit in their comfort zone. They can just look at us as a PE, private equity. But between us and the retail investor, it's just smart contract and it's just a D app online that they can put their money in, receive interest every period of time automatically. And upon, you know, depositing the USDC, they will receive a token uh, that represents their ownership in the underlying assets with a legal document burnt into it. So this legal document essentially has to do with uh, STO, security token offering, which is the only legal process allowed in the U.S. to issue on-chain crypto tokens that represent off-chain real asset that generates return. Um, so we have in-house lawyer who have specialized in this in their previous job. So we actually are saving a lot of cost on legal front because it's very expensive if you go out to external you know, legal counsel. So we will be filing you know, Reg D and Reg S offering documents with the SEC, um, there will be CIK numbers, you know, specific to the security token offering. And then all of that document is burned into the security token that the retail investor is going to get uh, upon depositing cash. So that's uh, at a very high level how the entire process will be like, both between us and the developer and also between us and the, and the retail investors. Yeah, that sounds very thorough. Um... How much of that, so like, I guess a couple questions based off of that, um, you could kind of take this wherever you want, but like one, how much of that whole process do you think like longer term, many years from now could be automated? Um, and then how much of that, obviously there's a lot of costs that come in for you guys of like having to manage all of that, uh, everything. What is your like cut and, and how much of that are you taking uh, to be profitable? 
Yeah, absolutely. So we're taking around one to ten. Uh, sorry, one to two percent. Um, so say if the overall loan, uh, you know, is paying us ten percent, then we might pocket one to two, and provide retail investors eight to nine percent. Um, so that's roughly the economic unit economics. Um, and I do think that a lot of it can be automated. So if you look at say Centrifuge, Goldfinch, Maple, Truvi, they run it with a DAO, which is a lot more decentralized and essentially rule based. Um, so instead of having us proactively reaching out to developer asking for projects, they are a platform where anyone can essentially apply to be on their platform, to be one of their asset pools. And then we also do plan to move towards that, say, next year or so. The reason why we're taking it a more centralized approach at the beginning is that we want to make sure the first few projects that we onboard are the absolute lowest risk and highest yield ones. Um, and that takes a bit of fine tuning and essentially cherry picking with our you know, specific industry connection and underwriting uh, capacity. So after we've established a track record of being you know, one of the safest choice out there with truly sustainable yield, then we plan to you know, open it up. We can have a DAO established with all of our community members and they will have the power to vote to decide what kind of asset they want. Um, and, you know, they can essentially be the quote unquote underwriting procedure. Um, so there's definitely pros and cons with DAOs. Um, DAOs are very, you know, democratized and decentralized, but it also means it sometimes can be slow um, just because we involve more people in the decision making process. And they could make mistakes because not everyone is trained as an expert to do underwriting mm -hmm. alone, right? Um, so that's why we also will have a separate role, which is called governors. So it's a bit like, you know, in the government, there's people who vote and there's people who engage in specific procedural activities, such as uh, writing re investment reports, um, doing due diligence and things like that. So we plan to have the DAO to elect certain people that are from, for example, BlackRock, Blackstone, Tricon, Merrill Lynch, these TradFi institutions with specific knowledge in different asset classes. And they can do the legwork of, say, contacting the developer, collecting information, drafting up a report, pre presenting to the DAO. And then the DAO can, you know, with that information, make an informed decision by voting on the forum to decide whether they want to onboard a certain uh, asset supplier or not. So that way, we have essentially automated the process, but also will ensure that there is quality asset that's onboarded supported by, you know, uh, domain knowledge. Yeah, that was going to be my next question on uh, the expertise of DAO members voting on things. So, yeah, I, I would agree. That's probably the better way to go about it. Is there yeah. a risk of like, I guess if you have governors, they would hopefully be able to identify this, but there could be potentially risk of like a DAO attack in a sense, if someone had a bunch of the tokens and wanted to vote their, their loan through with very, uh, you know, you know, like off, uh, I guess you could say, terms. Um, would you have methods to prevent something like that from happening? Yeah, that's actually a great point, which is what if someone who is really rich just come along and buy a huge amount of her token? So mm -hmm. one approach is to have quote-unquote delegates um, that vote on behalf of people. So instead of just having individuals directly vote, uh, it's kind of a bit like Congress to some right. extent. Like you can, uh, as a DAO, elect like five to 10 people who have been a very long time DAO member, have, you know, positive contribution to the community and is like very dedicated and has expertise. And then those people can vote on behalf of the rest of the DAO member to avoid this problem of, you know, what happens with direct voting. Like someone rich can just um, have a large say in the decision, you know, making process. So that's one potential solution to that. Um, and also it's just like being a bit careful with tokenomics, not to emit too much tokens, you know, begin with uh, and things like that. So yeah, there's gotcha. definitely different ways to avoid that. Yeah. Gotcha. Dell governance is an interesting topic. I feel like up to this point, everyone's kind of just been experimenting and it seems like you guys have a pretty innovative approach going. Um, unlike the tokenomics yeah. side of things, so mm -hmm. because you guys are technically, so USDY is technically a algorithmic stablecoin, mm -hmm. right? Um, could you talk about the layers of liquidity you guys have? It seems like something that's super unique and no one has really experimented with something like this before. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, this is actually a very good question, which is about you know, uh, you know, wh- why now a stablecoin? Uh, we've also we've all seen the collapse of UST to some extent, and to me, that's fundamentally because it's not truly over collateralized. So you're backing say eighteen billion dollar of UST with a uh, twenty billion dollar of Luna. It looks like you know twenty is greater than eighteen. But really, the question is, when you're trying to sell the entire position of Luna, can you get back 20 billion? And the answer is no, because as you sell that entire position, the value of Luna just turns to zero, and you can get back maybe at most 5 billion. And that will be the quote-unquote replacement value of your collateral. And that's really what the stablecoin is worth. So now the key here is, can we find some kind of asset to back stablecoin that's truly stable? And as you sell the entire position, somehow the value just don't go down. And that's why we decided to use real estate or real asset debt. The reason is um, is because of size. Like crypto is big, but it's also small. So if you think about it, crypto has two to three trillion dollar of market cap. It sounds very big, but that's smaller than the outstanding you know stock of uh, real estate in New York alone. Uh, mm-hmm. Not to mention the U.S. and the U.S. transaction volume of real estate every year is three to five trillion. Um, so essentially, if you're using a big thing to back a small thing, that's going to be much easier. And also, it has to do with uh, orthogonal volatility or uncorrelated volatility. Because within crypto, if you're using crypto A to back crypto B, uh, they're all essentially uh, correlated. And there's basically no independent volatility in crypto if you look at the price chart. Um, so if your stablecoin is going down, uh, likely your underlying asset is also going down. But if you're using an off-chain asset like real estate to back on-chain assets, like the real estate world will have no idea what's going on in crypto. Like these are two different sets of people. Um, so, you know, when, say, for example, there is a risk uh, factor in crypto and we need to somehow liquidate our underlying uh, portfolio, which is real estate. Number one, it's a drop in the sea in terms of size. Like selling a piece of 200 million real estate is a lot in crypto, but it's nothing for real estate. Um, and number two is, uh, you know, the, there's a lot, a, a lot of other things going on in real estate every day that's non-correlated with crypto. That's our selling would have very little price impact on the value of the underlying asset. So that's why you can pretty easily recover the value of the collateral when you do want a fire sale. Um, so that's really the key and the last uh, reserve, uh, last line of reserve. Um, and there's a few uh, other ones that we also have. So first, essentially, is the liquidity pool. So uh, USDY, as I mentioned, is not only a collateralized stablecoin, it's also a elbow stablecoin, so it's both. Um, so for in, in order for people to be able to exchange USDY into USDC on a daily basis, we incentivize people by providing yield farming reward uh, when people provide liquidity. So if you uh, stake USDY alone, you can get 1x the utility token reward. But if you stay USDY, USDC pair will give you 10x the reward or even higher. This is a number that the DAO can vote to decide. Um, but this basically means in order for you to maximize your return, what you want to do is really to provide liquidity for USDY. And we estimated that roughly 80% of USDY will be locked in LP pair. So that's actually pretty safe, a pretty deep pool. So that's one thing. And another thing is the transmuter. So the transmuter piece is the same as what Alchemix has. Um, and that basically means uh, there is a certain amount of cash that we hold on hand as a reserve. And when people want to sell USDY into USDC, they can always uh, you know, deposit USDY into the transmuter and get back one USDC with no question asked. And this is a bit like the reserve that the bank has. So if you think about it, when you deposit money into a bank, they will lend it out to someone else to build a building. That's why they can pay you interest. Otherwise, you know, there's no money. Uh, left on the table, but they never lend out the 100, full $100. They maybe lend out 95 to 98 and keep two to five on hand. And in our case, uh, we're the same, but we actually keep $10 on hand. So out of each $100 of USDY in circulation, there's $10 of USDC that's stored in our transmuter. And just in order to ensure against uh, the tail risk of people wanting to withdraw. So that's actually a very high percentage and pretty safe threshold. And after that, we'll come to the last, uh, you know, uh, last line of defense, as I mentioned just now, which is a truly uh, replaceable um, collateral pool um, where replacement value is pr- pretty stable. 
Awesome. Okay, so a couple of follow-up questions. One, on the incentives for the liquidity mining or providing, um, is that paid in like Citus token? Right, right, right. So there is the Citus token called CTS. And when people deposit USDC uh, and USDY pair, they're going to be able to get CTS reward. Um, so that's indeed paid by CTS token. How does the CTS token accrue value besides just governance? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so technically speaking, uh, if you want to have value accrual, you kind of touch the red line of it being a security, right? Mm -hmm. So we all know that. So that's why we're actually planning to have a stage, you know, stage launch. So at the beginning, we're going to launch a basic version of a lending protocol, which is very similar to what you see on Centrifuge or Goldfinch. So people deposit USDC and we provide you the 8% of interest directly. And that piece is going through Reg D and Reg S, uh, you know, fully complying with SEC rules. And we will have to do KYC AML accreditation on investors just to make sure that um, you do fall into either Reg D exemption or Reg S exemption. And then over time, uh, when we have reached enough scale, we're going to launch US, introduce USDY because we want to make sure that we have a well-diversified and very large uh, collateral pool to back the circulation of USDY with also, you know, not only assets that are long duration, but also assets that are short duration. That's easy to liquidate. Mm -hmm. And in stage three, we're going to launch the DAO and the CTS token together. And, and at that time, hopefully, people would have seen the value of this entire machine, uh, which is a lending protocol. Because if you think about it, why does Google stock worth something? Google stock is worth money because Google is a company that makes money. And Google makes money by essentially, you know, as revenue. And even though Google has never paid out dividends, there is expectation of future increase in their value and their revenue. And that's why the stock price keeps increasing. And that's also the problem with a lot of DeFi protocol, which is they don't make money. If you think about, say, Curve, they have $10 billion of TVL, but they make $3 million of revenue, which is tiny every week. And that's because there's no linkage between TVL and the amount of money, money that they make. But in our case, the more TVL we have, the more loans we can finance and the more revenue, which is interest income we get. And that's the same as the Google Ads revenue. And this is linear, which is very different. Uh, in DeFi, mo most of the time, there's no linear relationship uh, between TVL and revenue, but in our case, there is. So there's a very strong, uh, you know, essentially linkage between how, much, how, uh, how large we grow and how much revenue we make. And that's what supports the CTS value through a PE ratio, just like you know the price earning ratio in TradFi. This is also true for, for DeFi. So usually we see like for Curve, the PE is like 60. And for something like us, it could be even higher because of the strong relationship between revenue making and token prices. Um, so that's why we're going to launch the DAO with the CTS token at, a early, at, at a later stage um, when we have reached enough scale and have demonstrated our ability of making revenue. Got you. Okay. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, as far as like the back on the USDY, um, is it how how collateralized is it? Is it over collateralized? Yes. So USDY is definitely going to be over collateralized. So uh, if there is a hundred dollar of people depositing, you know, which is USDC then it will be financing a, say for example, $100 loan, which is backed by $120 of collateral. So in our first case, uh, the LTV is only 40%. So out of you know, $100 of asset, we only financed a $40 uh, of loan, which is, I would say, a 200% collateralization rate, which is really, really safe. Uh, over time, it might go down just because there's not so many uh, high-quality assets as the first one. But it's definitely going to be still like uh, in terms of LTV, 65% to 70%, not going to be higher than that. Gotcha. I asked because like in the liquidation event where you would need to maybe sell off to keep the backing of the token, it would be beneficial to have like a little extra cushion there, right? Because mm -hmm. if you need to sell something quickly, you may have to sell at a haircut. Uh, so that was kind of my question there. Um, yeah. Absolutely. For people who, so like as far as, I know the protocol is still very like it's still in testnet, right? Right. Yes, right now it's on testnet. So, like, I know it's still early stages, but let's look like a few years down the road. Ideally, what 
you would want it to be as a couple questions. So like there's different, uh, I guess, like people who would be using this protocol, um, especially on the investment side, like you would potentially have what, like fixed income people who are locking in their money for a certain amount of time based on, you know, a certain whatever, maybe basket or specific, uh, you know, real estate that unit that they like, or, mm-hmm. um, is there also going to be like a liquid bond market? Like how, how, how will that look? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a, actually a good question, which is the lockup period. Like, do we, for example, for someone who is investing USDC with us, do they have to lock up for like a year or is it possible for them to, you know, essentially take the money out the next day? And mm-hmm. it actually has to do with uh, Reg D and Reg S. So this might be a, you know, a bit too technical, but um, in the US, if you want to issue anything that's an instrument that promise return, you're essentially issuing security. Um, and technically speaking, you will need to go through an IPO, but that's a lot of work. So the SEC has published a few exemption clauses that allow you to do a private placement. Um, and those are exemptions such as Reg D, Reg S, Reg A, and Reg CF. And in our case, we're going to use Reg D and S to begin with. And then for Reg D, it allows us to sell to a U.S. accredited investor. And Reg S allows us to sell to a non-U.S. investor. And the key is Reg D comes with a lockup period of a year. So if you're a U.S. accredited investor investing in us, then it means there will be a lockup. But if you're Reg S, which means non-U.S., either accredited or not, then there isn't a lockup and you can feel free to transfer your token to someone else who is willing to buy. So there is instant liquidity. Um, so yeah, so hopefully that answers some of the question. And also the, for security token uh, market, there's actually a huge amount of infrastructure already built. So there are you know, platforms such as Oasis Pro, uh, T0, INX.com, which are all security token exchanges that are fully licensed with a quote-unquote ATS alternative trading license uh, you know, allowed by the SEC. So people can uh, essentially trade their tokens on those platforms um, you know, with other people who also fall into Reg D or Reg S. Um, so that's how the essentially liquidity piece is looking like. Do you ever plan on having your own platform like that? We do have that on our roadmap for sure. Um, so actually the hard part not only is the you know technical part, which is building a well-functioning exchange, um, you know, takes a bit of finesse, but also mm-hmm. applying for the ATS license does take some time. And you need to have demonstrated a significant progress or track record. So that's why we start with a primary offering or primary market approach first, um, essentially issuing security tokens to our retail investors. And then once we have reached enough scale, like enough number of assets and enough number of retail investors uh, that's in our community, then we're ready to go to the next phase, which is the secondary market liquidity. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what's the, like the what would you say your biggest challenge is today? Is it just the regulation side or wh- what do you think are the biggest hurdles that you guys are going to have to overcome? Yeah, so uh, I think one thing is actually to get conviction from crypto community uh, that real estate is not a monster. <laughs> this might, might sound weird, but uh, historically speaking, whenever I've talked to like crypto people, and they hear real estate, they just frown upon it. They really don't yeah. like it uh, because they feel like it's very extremely traditional and very liquid and just not very palatable, which, which, which sort of makes sense because crypto is all about, you know, instant liquidity. You can trade anytime. There's not even a schedule, right? It's not like 9 to uh, 4.30 every day. And mm-hmm. also it's completely permissionless. All the price oracle are on chain. It's very transparent. But then real estate is almost like everything that's opposite. Uh, it's very private and opaque. It's kind of old-fashioned. Um, and they, they're not very technological forward at all, so on and so forth. Uh, but you know that's precisely why we're here, trying to bridge the gap by taking on the heavy labor within. Like We will do the magic, the transformation of asset class um, so that each, you know, the, each party, the real estate party and the crypto people can sit in their comfort zone. Um, and we do think that uh, there still needs to be some, you know, hands-on or manual labor involved. Like it's very hard to fully automate um, and make decentralized this whole process of um, onboarding 
assets, even though we try very hard. And as I kind of mentioned, we have an approach which is a very delicate system with the DAO and different uh, you know, stakeholders such as the governors, the delegates, and the, and the you know, voters. Uh, but it's going to uh, be a process for sure. And there's a trade-off, what I think, between uh, the quality of assets um, and how decentralized or automated or how fast things can be. Uh, because if you open a platform up for anyone to apply, then you know, mechanically speaking, you will have negative selection because now instead of actively reaching out to people, you're getting people to apply for you, then mm-hmm. there's a question of, okay, did they apply because they couldn't get financing from elsewhere, right? So that's the problem with a permissionless system, which is ever selection. So this is a you know a you know uphill battle that everyone's playing in this field. We th- we do think that collectively speaking, we will come up with solutions, you know, such as the Price Oracle. I think they're uh, you know Chainlink, for example, they have databases. I think at least five databases that is on real estate data. So there are you know official sources of say for example transaction history on for example multiple listing service MLS, which is supported by NRA National Association of Realtors. So on and so forth. So it's not like there isn't a ultimate source of truth when it comes to real estate data. It's just that things haven't been integrated before, um, and it could be a bit expensive because you know, uh, you know, as a researcher, I know like Stanford, for example, uh, spent a lot of money buying this multiple listing service data uh, on real estate transaction history. Uh, but we're all you know moving towards the the right direction, which is trying to integrate data on chain, make it more automated, make it more transparent, decentralized. And I think we will get there um, at some point for sure. Yeah. On the uh, decentralization part, I think it's a really good point that you brought up that, um, you know, I, I, think there's, I feel like the crypto community especially is very pointed on like, oh, like max decentralization when the point you brought up, you know, some of these things are just so complex and there's a specific knowledge base you need that requires centralization. Um, the Oracle issue, bringing real world, real world assets on chain. Um, how are you guys thinking about that long term? Because I know, like, I mean, obviously, Chainlink is uh, the only like true decentralized Oracle network, I believe. And then you have solutions mm-hmm. like Dia that are using IBM, like a hybrid model, like IBM Cloud. Mm-hmm. Do you think that uh, there's going to be like a bottleneck on the Oracle side bringing data on chain in terms of like mm-hmm. price manipulation and all that? Yeah, I think the Oracle problem is probably one of the biggest challenge. Uh, I think the key really isn't about uh, how to bring the data on chain is whether the data exists or not. Because as long as some kind of data exists, there will be data agencies that collect them and sell them for money. Like uh, CoreLogic, for example, is a notable example for the real estate one. Um, And then as long as this data exists, someone like Chainlink will be able to try to bring it on chain. But the main problem is for real estate, a lot of it is private and there's no data collected. And the logic fundamentally is actually about regulation. So uh, MLS data, multiple listing service, is actually purely related to uh, residential. And the reason why it is residential is that the, uh, the Fannie and Freddie, uh, the GSC, uh, the you know, government entities, want to protect retail investors. They want to protect the smaller guys. So they want to make sure that, for example, when people are buying a single family, they're not being screwed over by large institutions like Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, or Wells Fargo. Um, and they're providing mortgages that's fair, not discriminating against you know, certain types. Um, so that's why there's a lot of data collected in that process, just so that GSC can have a clear you know, bird's eye view of what's going on in the sector. So actually, the more regulation, the more data collected and the more transparency we have. So that's why if you even look at academics, there's a huge amount of paper written about residential market, um, but there's very little paper written about commercial because, you know, the, go- the government doesn't really care about large institutions screwing each other over. Like if one PE got a better deal than another PE, they, you know, they, there's... Uh, there's no like uh, no hard feelings, right? Because right, they, right. they're all adults. Um, so because nobody cares, there's actually no data collected. And es- especially for private businesses, they want to keep their data private um, because that's their competitive advantage. Nobody wants to dis- disclose their, their long underwriting records, um, you know, their approach and things like that. So really, I think the key problem is actually not about bringing the data on chain, it's collecting the data itself um, for privately placed real estate, especially commercial. 
Um, so that's something that's it's really is plumbing. It's like dirty work that someone has to do. And at the beginning, there isn't a lot of economic incentive uh, because uh, you, if you are selling the, the data to private parties, then maybe there is money. But if you're just bringing it on chain to offer it as an infrastructure, there isn't a lot of money uh, to, you know, actually to begin with. So this, you know, someone, maybe Gates Foundation should think about it um, and, you know, just do public goods for, for the, the whole community. Yeah. Yeah, that's I didn't think about that. That's interesting. Um, yeah, real estate's such a huge, messy market. Um, there's so many ways you could go about it. Like I, I do, I do get when you say that you approach, you know, people in crypto about real estate, and they're like very like hesitant, because obviously, like anyone who's been in crypto long enough has heard like there's a few things that are kind of like very in the real world asset space that are like very kind of oh sure whatever like on chain real estate insurance supply chain things like that we've heard that for you know years and nothing's ever really happened to me like i don't think it's a question of if it's just a question of like when not to be so cliche right and mm -hmm. uh i think taking a very targeted approach like you're doing is probably the best route because obviously just saying oh we're gonna do real estate on chain it's like what does that mean right that's so mm -hmm. broad um, I think the debt approach is really cool too. Like, uh, tell me if this is a stupid question, but like, say the Dow wanted to kind of skip some of the steps and just go on to the real estate bond market and like purchase bonds. Could they do that and bring them on chain? Yeah, I think uh, there's no reason they shouldn't because, uh, you know, there is one thing is the, the privately placed real estate borrowing lending market. It's quote unquote called private note. Essentially, anyone who is an individual or entity or anyone who is another individual entity can enter into a contract that says person A borrow from person B and nobody will, you know, stop, stop, stop you. And that's, uh, that, that's why it's very private and opaque because it's very non-standardized. But there's also the public bond market, which is exchange traded or OTC traded. And then that's a lot easier to deal with. So I would even say, if we're going to start a DAO, the first thing, the first trial that they should have is probably to try to buy some of these, you know, open market real estate bonds um, or shares in a debt fund or a debt ETF to begin with. And, you know, those are the, the data there is then easy. It's the same as if you buy S&P 500. Right. So that's definitely an approach to begin with. I think it, this is the right first step. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we've covered a lot. Um, I guess a few final questions would be like, um, who do you think will be the main investors uh, long term? Mm -hmm. You think it'd be individuals or more institutions? Yeah, so right now we're actually seeing a lot of institutions being interested in us. I think this is because institutional investors probably on average, their risk uh, profile is, you know, they, they, they prefer slightly less risky ones. Right, because because if you think about it, when crypto was a new field, the people who went into it first are a lot of DGENs who are chasing after a huge uh, potential return, but also suffer from huge risk. Yeah. But they're just not aware <laughs> of it, <laughs> right? Um, but for institutions, they're a bit more sophisticated. They understand the quote unquote, um, say sharp ratio, which is you know what you care about is really return over risk. Um, mm -hmm. So that's why they will have a portfolio allocation, which is some in like cash, some in bonds, some in equity, you know, uh, of this sort, even within crypto. So after the collapse of UST, which is the quote unquote only source of steady, safe yield of 20% in crypto, which is like a bond, uh, a lot of institutions are actually scrambling to look for a, a re replacement. Because if you think about it, USD had like a $10 million TBL, then where did all the money go? Has to go to somewhere else that's kind of similar in nature. So they actually discovered us and be like, hey, we want to try our product. Even though it's only 8%, not 20, it's better than nothing. Because now in crypto, we're seeing really, really low risk-free rates, like mm -hmm. even, you know, just a three to four percent or even lower than that. Um, so we are actually getting a lot of inquiries from investment DAOs, from crypto hedge funds, from like you farming communities wanting to be part of the first product offering. So we're actually already slightly oversubscribed for our first product, given how small the first one is. Uh, but over time, I think, uh, you know, re re retail or individual investors will catch up when they have realized that you can just put all your money in meme coins and hope for the 1000x return because the 1000x often turn into negative 1000x um, and you know bond products something that 
it's going to have a larger and larger market share as we go forward. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Yeah, it'll be funny. Maybe in a few years, it'll be pretty standard that everyone has some uh, real estate exposure in their crypto portfolios. That would be pretty funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Um, um, yeah, that's okay. Just jump in real quick. Um, yeah. yeah, so I, I just like kind of taking a step back. Um, what was your thought process on launching on Polygon um, versus like other chains? Like, what was like, most appealing? Um, working with them you guys oh um so for us uh, uh we actually likely uh are going to work with avalanche for various reasons mm. um so at the very beginning we actually thought about launching out optimism uh we're, we're we're pretty serious about it but then after a period of time we realized number one the you know new op token launch wasn't as successful as we would like to have seen you know the price wasn't doing so well and also there was a security breach so for various reasons, we decided that maybe a slightly more mature um, and more stable chain will be better. And also we were getting a lot of support from Avalanche. So there were someone called Daniel who has been helping us a lot. And he's been kind of treating us as if we are already a portfolio company, like the, the level of support that they give us, like introducing us to different VCs, to different partners, other similar protocols for partnership, inviting us to events. It's just like something that we, we we haven't seen in you know in other sort of uh, you know protocols uh, or chains. So that's why we might go with Avalanche. Um, but again, like we're pretty open to uh, talking with other chains. Um, a lot of it really has to do with that, what what kind of support we can get to be successful in their environment in their ecosystem. So you know that's kind of where our thought process were. Do you think you'll end up being multi-chain or just stick with one? Yeah, I think we will be eventually multi-chain because we don't want to, you know, just bet on one thing or put eggs in just one basket. Mm -hmm. And I also do think that each chain eventually will need a something like us, which is a crypto bond product with sustainable mm -hmm. yields supported by rural finance, you know, lending. Um, so that's why I do think we could be a infrastructure of some sort for each of the different chains. So yeah, totally. Well, this was great. I could ask a million more questions, but we're almost at an hour here. I don't want to take too much more of your time. So um, yeah, uh, I recommend everyone go check out uh, Citus. And uh, do you have anything you want to plug before we go? Um, so we're planning to launch our product very soon, uh, in August or September this year. So uh, if you go to robinland.io or citus.finance, um, you'll be able to see our product offering in a month. Um, and also you can join our, you know, Discord or Twitter, uh, which you can also find on these two websites. Um, so really looking forward to have you be part of the community. And uh, let's all earn some fixed passive income together during this market turbulence. Awesome. And do you have a Twitter yourself people can follow? Yeah, so I do have a Twitter. So it will be Scarlet. Uh, so Scarlet is the color Scarlet. Sijia is S-I-J-I-A, which is my uh, Chinese first name. Um, mm -hmm. So you can find me uh, there. Yeah. Awesome. We'll okay. link that we'll, for everybody. Yep. Too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Really enjoyed this. This was a really great conversation. And uh, we'll be following closely to see how things go. Good yeah, luck. sounds great. Thanks so much. Thanks so much really glad on. to be here. Yeah. Have Thank a great you. day. Bye-bye.